Hi there, this is Shaughnessy coming to you with a bit of a special introduction. The next conversation takes place over a two-part series. Our guest is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. This abuse took place over 40 years ago. This guest is here to tell how that journey has gone, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because there are so many important things that we learned from this conversation, we didn't want to cut any part of it out. As such, we are bringing it to you in two parts. We hope you all get as much out of it as we did. And because our guest does go into some specifics of the abuse and the subsequent issues, we do want to make sure that we are clear that today's talk will contain sensitive material. Strong language is used. This podcast may not be suitable for some listeners, so please use your discretion and take care of yourselves. This is only the second in our overall Survivor series. There will be many more to come. And with that, I will introduce you to our guest. Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Today we bring to you a person whose personal experience is one that we haven't really talked about on the show before, and you would think that makes it a unique set of circumstances, but it's not. Our guest's story is similar to that of many, many people. What sets Eric Schwartz apart is the fact that he's talking about it. Eric is a black male survivor of childhood sexual abuse. He's here today to tell you about his journey and to discuss some of the circumstances that made the abuse possible and how the black male perspective differs from others. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Uh, nice to talk with you, Shaughnessy. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. Very important stuff. And I don't know, I think I learn something every time I talk to you or look up something on the internet about you. So I'm very, very excited to have this conversation with you. Why don't you just kind of start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, to get sort of into my story and into my life, I, I sometimes I describe it to people as if um, uh, sometimes I think about my life that I um, it, it's like I came into a play uh, towards sort of the end of the second act, and everybody else in my family has been there from the beginning. They've all seated, you know, sitting there, and I sit down, and from that point on, I'm trying to figure out actually what took place prior to my arrival, as well as how it makes sense with what's going on for the rest of the rest of the play. And I say that because as it relates to uh, my childhood abuse, on my dad's side of the family, I was the youngest, I've, I think about 12 cousins. So I'm the youngest, uh, so I'm the youngest of the youngest. My dad is the youngest of five, and I'm, I'm his youngest uh, at the time. And so when, when the sort of history of my family kind of unravels a little bit and I start to learn a little bit more of the history of my family then my life starts to make a lot more sense but heretofore it took me many years you know I'm 53 years old and it took me uh till I was about um 46 47 mm -hmm. to be able to in that area 46 47 48 to be able to figure out what the hell is going on with my family and why it has such a profound effect upon me and that story really starts off by saying that, you know, there's a history of alcoholism on my dad's side of him. My dad was an alcoholic. He stopped drinking when I was 20. His father was also an alcoholic. 
and my uh, dad's oldest sister, uh, my aunt Connie, was also an alcoholic. And sort of, so the story sort of starts with her, where she was an alcoholic, drug addict, had six kids, and uh, her husband was in jail for some type of drug offense. And the rest of the family, all her younger siblings, uh, were putting their money together to try to give her money to take care of these six kids that she had. And initially, when they would give her money, she would just go and spend it on alcohol and drugs. And so therefore, the plan changed up where the family started buying uh, groceries for her children. And she would respond very negatively, a lot of cursing about, you know, who the hell do you think you are? You know, do you think I can't take care of my family? And all of those things. And so tragically, um, she was murdered by her boyfriend and left these six kids sort of ab abandoned. Okay. And the three remaining siblings, my dad and my, and his two older sisters, uh, my aunt Juliet and my aunt uh, Irene, split up and took each took two of the kids. Wow. And so my dad and my mom were fairly young and had only recently married and I think had been married about four years and took in the two eldest kids who were 10 and seven, uh, my so, cousin Chester. Do you me. remember what the age difference was between your dad and Connie? Sure, it's 11 years. Okay, so that's so, a pretty significant range there. Correct, so somebody that, you know, and he definitely sort of idolized his, his older siblings and now here he is caring for her and then ultimately caring, caring for her kids and not really, and not adequately prepare for it. And neither one of my parents were obviously, it's a, a huge, uh, very difficult situation. But the kids, the six kids were in such profoundly bad shape. Uh, I remember my mom telling me that my cousin Kimmy, who was seven at the time, uh, when she came to live with them, that she could barely talk, like in complete sentences. And that my mom was just horrified at, you know, how poorly they had been treated and just uh, the life that they had led up until this point. So I bring that entire story up because fast forwarding through that, one of the six kids, my cousin Freddie, he came to, uh, my parents got divorced when I was three. Uh, but even though my parents were divorced, he came to live with us when I was about six for the summer. That would have made him 13. Okay. And he was known as a juvenile delinquent, mm -hmm. had been in all kinds of trouble with the law, even at the age of 13, had been thrown out of other family members' houses. And now my, my brother, and I don't want to get to make this confusing, but my brother's name is also Freddie. Okay. So my cousin was known as Freddie Booker, which was his last name, obviously. Mm -hmm. my, my brother was Little Freddie. And my dad was Big Fred. So there's a lot of Freddy's going on. With <laughs> I think every family has stuff like that. Where you're like, oh. Yes. So that, that was always really interesting. But he convinced my mom, he and my grandfather convinced my mom to let my cousin Freddie come stay with us for the summer. And, and during that summer is when he sexually abused me. And so... You were uh, six years old. Yes, I was six. And so I think a number of things, when you start to read about the statistics of sexual abuse and, and why it is so rampant, is there's the absence of a father in the house, which is certainly what I had. There's that opportunity, my mom's away at work all day. Mm -hmm. And there is the, uh, within the African-American community, kids are twice as likely to be sexually abused. And I think that comes from a number of reasons. Obviously the, the history of African-Americans in this country is that you know there are more absentee fathers uh there is more uh, poverty 
within uh, those areas, which just leads to a less, uh, less of an opportunity for a nuclear family to exist. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at that situation, I not only look at how it affected me, I look at the fact that, okay, what had transpired with my cousin prior to him coming to live in our house? I certainly believe that he was sexually abused somewhere along the way. Statistics show that 80% of abusers have been abused. And so it really is just this never-ending cycle that needs to be broken. And it starts with awareness as well as, you know, taking certain uh, preventative measures. Now, my experience in being abused is something that um, I had uh, repressed till I was probably about 10 years old. And then maybe about once a month, I it almost played like a movie in my head. Uh, I would be running in my house uh, into my bedroom and someone's chasing me. I don't know who this, I don't know who this person is at the time. And I look over my right shoulder to see how close they are to me. And I trip over my own feet. I fall to the ground. Someone climbs on top of me, uh, puts his uh, knees on my shoulders, pulls me down and begins kissing me ferociously. Mm-hmm. And I'm fighting with everything I have to be able to get out uh, of this circumstance. And the person is just too strong. And finally, I kind of relent. And then it sort of just goes to black. And oh, Real quick. So for, did you, you didn't have any memory from 6 to 10 of the abuse at all that you can recall? Not, so not when it, you know, obviously, I'm sure I remembered when it happened. Sure. And then, and then I never told anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I remember it. I remember it happening at least twice. I don't know how many times that it did happen. Uh, but that that so it's kind of two different memories I have. Mm-hmm. But that the one that I just described to you is the one that just consistently played in my mind. And I did yes. I, so I did repress it. Mm-hmm. And then I remember around the age of ten, I when I started to remember it, and it would you know it would trigger. And it would happen probably about once a month if I had to estimate. And as soon as I would, no, no, go Uh, right ahead. Do you remember the first time that it happened, the first time it came back to you? Do you have any idea what triggered it? Or, I mean, do you have a memory of that event at all when you first remembered? No, not at all. It was just like, uh, you know, just, it just overcomes you. You you don't even see it coming. It's, it's almost like a, like a random thought that anybody else would have about, you know, oh, you know, like when you have a memory about maybe something that you have to do and you're like, oh yeah, I got to go. Let me go grab the newspaper this morning. Mm-hmm. I said I was going to do that. It's memory, just one of those things where it just where it washes over you. Yeah. The memory is such um, a fun, it's, it's fascinating. Honestly, the, the brain is fascinating. And I, you know, I think a lot of people don't, certainly don't understand repressed memories. Some people I think don't even believe in them. They don't understand that the brain does different things to protect a person. And sometimes one of those things is repressing those and pushing them way back here until a later time when maybe you're more equipped to be able to handle it. So I think it's extremely interesting that this is part of your journey. Correct. And now, and I had obviously heard stories of people who had repressed memories. I remember the comedian Roseanne talked about, you know, that mm-hmm. she was sexually abused by both her parents and she had repressed that. And I remember sitting and watching it on TV and going, ah, could that really happen? And I've been doing it all my life. And, and so I know how, I know how deep it can get in terms of how you do not want to reflect back on yourself. And obviously that's part of the problem is that you know, in, in trying to distance yourself from these, these awful memories, you know, you're ultimately 
unfortunately doing yourself a disservice uh, because you're not really, you know, you're not dealing with the issue. And obviously, again, that leads to a number of negative factors uh, down the line and, and, you know, not just in my life, but in the lives of other people that I know who have had the same experience. Anyway, so I have been, you know, uh, dealing again with this sort of repression and it coming over me, as I said, and, and shutting it down. And when it's, it's interesting that I believe it happened around at the age of 10, because at the age of 10 is when I became an abuser. So I've abused three people in my life. Uh, the first time was um, the uh, son of my mom's uh, boyfriend uh, came, to, came to visit us. And it would be that same thing, the forced kissing, uh, the rubbing against uh, uh, each other. Uh, uh, and that also took place with a cousin of mine mm -hmm. and, and ultimately uh, uh, my stepbrother. Mm -hmm. And so at the age of 14, uh, I was discovered with my stepbrother by my dad in my bedroom. And my dad just walked in, saw us, turned around immediately and walked out. And wow. yeah, it was, it was interesting. And about a week later, he didn't say anything, about a week later, he called me on the phone and he screamed at me at the top of his voice like I had never, ever heard. Don't ever do that again. Don't ever see that. Boys don't do that. And just yelling and screaming. And when I brought the story up to him about uh, four or five years ago, he says he doesn't remember any of it. Here's a question. What was the age difference between you and your stepbrother at that point? I was 14 and he was 10, 11. Okay. And it's very interesting that was the reaction of your father. Do you think that it was more concerning to him that you were both boys or that it was, there was that age difference there and it should have like more, I'm more so that we were both boys, <laughs> if, if truth, be, truth be told. And so at this point, again, I'm, when I look back on those experiences, again, no rhyme or reason to why I felt the need to do it. It mm -hmm. was, it was just seemed to be a compulsion, something that I was, I was driven to do, knew it was bad, knew it was wrong, but had no idea, was not making any connection between previous abuse and what I was doing, what I was doing now. And obviously a lot of shame attached to that, uh, that again, I continue to perpetuate, you know, what was, what was going on there. And it's still, you know, while I have told my story to many people, uh, there's still, uh, as it relates to my stepbrother, never had that discussion with him yet. Uh, I have the opportunity to do so, but it, it is something that really does scare me mm -hmm. because um, I think in a sense, like I said, I, I, in a, uh, so many victims want to be understood. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that I'm understood in terms of, you know, understand the entire context of what's happened with me. You know, one of the reasons why I do want to speak out about who I am is the more negative aspects of what I've done in my life, I can't let that, at the end of the day, I can't let that define me. It certainly is a part of what I've done, but I really do people, want people to understand the context of what I've done and why I've done it or, or uh, 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 so that I can you know, best explain who I am you know, as, as sort of an entire human being. Um, so anyway, at that point in time, my dad yelled at me so for, my dad was a pretty soft-spoken guy, Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it scared the hell out of me and I stopped uh, but it doesn't mean that again then it it just transferred to something else uh, at the age of 15 I started gambling 
And so uh, it was interesting. I got a job um, and was making uh, good money for a 15 year old. I was working at a place called Friendly's. It's a lot like a steak and shake kind mm -hmm. of place uh, where I grew up in New Jersey. And so I was making decent money and started a, a friend of mine at school. He was in this little, you know, dollar, $2 football pool. And so I got interested in that and then started my own football pool right there at the high school that I was attending. And I was going to prep school, uh, jacket and tie every day, that type of thing. Even the little bit of money that we were winning or losing or whatever, it wasn't enough to excite me, so to speak. And so I just kept looking for things to let's raise the stakes. Let's make this, let's make this more exciting. And my dad, when we were younger, my dad would take us to the racetrack let us bet a dollar or two on, on the races and so forth. And that was exciting. And so when I was 17, I went to the Meadowlands racetrack. And the first time I went there by myself, I actually went with a friend, but no adult supervision, so to speak, and was gambling illegally. Mm -hmm. uh, I went $700. And that was so exciting. I bet on the wrong horse and I won. So when you start doing that, you're like, hey, this is easy. And that, that's, <laughs> there you go. And so the slide began, you know, Atlantic City is in New Jersey. I've got a fake ID, and even though I looked 12, at the age of 17, I was able to sneak into Atlantic City casinos, and the slide was just almost immediate. I was losing all the money I was making. Uh, I would be furious at myself afterward. And then in order to alleviate some of that fury, I would drive as fast as I could from the southern portion of New Jersey back up to my house, uh, got speeding tickets, lost my license at the age of 19 and only got my license back legally this year. Oh, wow. So 34 years of by hook or crook trying to drive illegally, being arrested, tickets, arrested, 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 just unbelievable circumstances that you put yourself in. That, I think a lot of people don't know in terms of the license thing, once it's suspended, it just snowballs. It, maybe starts out as a smaller problem, but by the time you're a little bit down the road, because every single time if you get pulled over and you don't have a license and that's another ticket or maybe even another arrest, and then it just grows and grows and grows until it seems like this insurmountable thing. Correct. To get it and, back. And yes, so you're accruing fines that you're, that you, at some point in time, you say, this is hopeless. I'm never able to get my license back. And really without the good graces of my, of my wife and my mother, I would, I wouldn't have my license now. They're really the ones that, you know, spurred me and, but, I'm talking thousands and thousands of dollars, legal fees and so forth, just to be able to get my license back. But really that started out of a situation of, again, where because of my abuse, I have, uh, you know, what that really creates in, in you is these waves of tension and stress that never leave. So it's no matter what, you know, no matter what type of therapy you're doing and so forth, you can learn how to manage it but you're not going to be able to overcome the waves of stress and depression that are attached to this, this assault that you've, that you've gone through. And I try to explain to people who don't know what the experience is like that if you've ever had your car broken into or your home broken into and that feeling of helplessness that you feel and you're like, you just feel so aggrieved that somebody could put their hands on your things. Well, imagine if somebody put their hands on your body and restrains you held you down uh, and you were helpless to do anything about it. It really is almost that feeling that you've experienced with your home or your car mm -hmm. you know, multiplied by what, whatever, you know, 
ridiculous number you want to throw out there, a hundred, a thousand, whatever it is. And if it's something that's happened to you as a child, and then you repress those memories just to be able to cope. Mm-hmm. And, and then randomly it comes out at these, you know, uh, different periods of time that you have no control over whatsoever. You are absolutely seeking an outlet to be able to help you deal with that. And for me, it became, you know, obviously started with abuse of others and then led in, into gambling. And whatever, at least I've learned through, you know, the different therapists that I've spoken to is that when people try to, you know, discuss, well, why are you addicted to this? Or why are you addicted to that? Or why did you turn to that? Well, that addiction in the moment when you first do it is 100% successful. I have, when I go gambling, I have the negative, I have the opposite reaction of average normal people. When I'm gambling, I'm as calm as can be. I've bet they going to a blackjack table and bet $5,000 on a hand that I obviously couldn't afford to lose. And during the, while they were dealing the cards, I've been as calm as can be. While mm-hmm. anybody else would be losing it. <laughs> they'd be, you know, they'd be crapping in their pants as they should, <laughs> as they should. And you can <laughs> just start to understand, you know, learn the pathology of someone who has been abused, especially as a child. Their, their level of maturity is less and just how they handle certain situations and certainly deal with stress mm-hmm. is completely different. You know, I wish I knew what the thought process was of someone who hadn't experienced what I had experienced at my age. I see in other people a calmness that I don't have, that I, or that I pretend to have, or that mm-hmm. only gambling settles down for me. And so, you know, I went a long time trying to figure out why am I self-sabotaging? Why am I constantly taking two weeks worth of pay and losing it in 20 minutes? You know, I I bust my ass (laughs) working as a bartender at a hotel in downtown Indianapolis and I get my check on Friday at 4, 4.30 and my nine o'clock is gone. And then there's a sobering up after the fact that Mm -hmm. whatever delusions of grandeur I had for those for that three or four hour period is a huge slap in the face once I've lost this money. Yeah, and then it's reality. a never Yes. And then it just leads to a never ending cycle of I've lost I lost that nine hundred. I wanted to win five hundred. Mm-hmm. Now I have next time I go back, I have to win fourteen hundred at least in order to feel fulfilled. There's never, you know, you're in a hole and you just keep digging. It's and- so common for this type of issue to happen and not necessarily gambling. But, you know, as you and I have talked about, lots of substance abuse issues, um, gambling, and it's, this, it's the same mindset, it's the same thing going on within your brain, which is this is what soothes you. And right. then it's no different from coming off of that gambling high than coming off of a high from a drug. You know, once you're back here, then you're back where you were before, except actually you're probably farther back than you were before. Is that fair? Absolutely, absolutely. You, you, you just find yourself, yes, you're running this race that you have no chance of winning. And I think, so twofold, let's say in terms of what's lacking is the alternatives. And there are many out there to be able to say, here's how you can deal with the pressure. Here's how you can deal with the stress. And so, you know, we all have stresses that we have to deal with, uh, Mm -hmm. traffic, family. Uh, And so, (laughs) but when there are additional stresses that are put on you, whether it's work or, a death in the family, things that you don't have control over, but can be life altering. You really need to have a number of tools or, or clubs in your bag, so to speak, to draw on, whether that's 
meditation or yoga, mm -hmm. mindfulness, EMDR, uh, a, a wide variety of things that I, you know, feel is really the crux of the problem with this mental health situation. Because that's what I really think it comes down to is that when it comes to mental health, at, at least in this country, uh, mm -hmm. it's given short shrift. It's looked as the thing that if you have the opportunity to do it, you should do it rather than being really the main priority of all of our lives. Mental health has such a profound impact on your health, what you eat and so forth, and just how you go about whether you're enjoying your life or not. It really is at the forefront of that. And it's my hope that one day there'll be mental health facilities in every community mm -hmm. that are free of charge or very low cost. And it is something that is encouraged the, the same way you have to, you know, you have to get a, a physical every year to go to camp or to go to go to, you know, go to a certain school or, or that your job requires should be the same way that you have a mental health check in periodically for your own benefit. And it's something that people take pride in. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you're familiar. I, I'm sure you probably are with uh, Brene Brown's power of vulnerability. So when that got, someone sent, you know, recommended I look at that five or six years ago. And it really did change my whole perspective about what it is that I wanted to be seen as, as be as vulnerable as possible. And also what I admired in others that I saw would get up on stage. I mean, you know, I've, I've been a, I was a stand-up comedian for 12 years and so many of the comedians that I admired were the ones that could get up on stage and tell the most intimate parts of their lives or how they viewed things. It was again that revelation that led me to know when I was on the right path about things that I'm trying to achieve now. So just so I want to make sure everybody heard that Brene Brown is just a phenomenal person. And the book that he's talking about is The Power of Vulnerability. She has several, but that one I think is especially eye-opening and extremely helpful. I want to backtrack a little bit real quick and then we'll come back to this and kind of go forward with the gambling and how that kind of continued. I want to go back a little bit to your family situation. After you were caught with your stepbrother, did anybody in the family talk about it? Did your dad tell your mom or any other adults within the family? No, my dad didn't tell anyone. And obviously I was, I was as scared as could be. My, my dad, in the dynamics of our family, like I said, my dad was a soft-spoken guy. We got along great, but he had been an absentee father. And, uh, and my mom was our primary caregiver. She was physically and verbally abusive. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, it would have been a situation. Law enforcement would have gotten involved. Uh, but back then, it was just, just generally accepted. But she was the one that me and my two brothers were fearful of. Okay. And so I was fearful of if my dad told her, you know, all hell would break loose. Mm -hmm. And so he did not he did not speak on it at that time. It just left me, that whole situation, I felt ashamed. I felt alone. I still, again, I never reconciled my abuse because I was repressing that memory with what I was doing. And so, yeah, so things just sort of. I want to point out that this is actually very common. I, I think some people are like, oh my gosh, he didn't say anything to anybody. This, and again, this is how it perpetuates. We're talking about how mental health is stigmatized and it is majorly. And I think that if we could stop doing that and make it available for everyone, we would have a totally different society. But along those same lines, it's the same thing with sexual abuse. It's taboo. We don't want to talk about it. 
And so within families, even this happens all of the time. People find out, especially I think if you've got one kid who is um, abusing another kid, which again is very, very common. I think they say something like 40% of kids who, younger kids who get sexually abused are abused by an older, stronger child. So I think that's really important to point out for people that this happens all the time and it continues to happen. I do think that we're getting better as a society, but so many times the family just buries it because it's embarrassing or shameful or whatever. And then it leaves a kid like you feeling those ways, like completely alone. You're out on this deserted island by yourself. Nobody understands. You don't feel like you can tell anybody anything. And then problems arise. Correct. And, and I had no idea why I was doing the things I was doing. I just felt like an oddball and you're feeling bad. As I, as I look back on my memories, there's a certain level of the abuse that, that I enjoyed and you were shameful about that, but you know it's wrong. There's a certain level of the, when I was an abuser that I enjoyed and obviously, and, and so you just have these, you have these mixed feelings. And I think the, the only way that real change is going to come about is if that, again, families are trained to have discussions ahead of time about what is right, what is wrong, again, and it's not just a one-time conversation. So it is something that you follow up on, at least, you know, on a yearly basis about a check-in with your child about, hey, make sure you know, no matter what happens, that can always come and talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. And it's because... Do you think it would have made a difference for you if that had happened when you were 10 years old or if, you know, you had talked about it when you were six? Do you think that if you had told your mom and dad and they did something about it, it would change things for you moving forward? Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. I, sad to say, I'm going to say no, only because even 30, 40 years later, as I recounted and have told my story to different family members and friends, the response has been, it's, well, it's been kind of twofold. There has been, I think, people that sort of turned a side eye to me. They're like, yeah, okay, it, it probably happened, but I'm not, I'm not really 100% sure. And then maybe even to a worse degree, there are the people that believe it happened, but don't think that, you know, think that you should be able to more easily overcome it. Yes. Uh, and that, yeah, yeah, I know you must have had it rough, but, you know, couldn't you have just sort of, you know, just shut that down and, and move forward? And I tell those people in and, and the brief opportunities that I've had so far to speak about this publicly, I say, you know, it's such a difficult subject to talk about. And I said, you know, if I was six, when, if I told people, someone today that I was having a conversation with that when I was six years old, I broke my leg, I tripped, I fell down the stairs and I broke my leg. Uh, right away, they would show compassion. They'd, oh my goodness! Even even though it happened many years ago, they would say, "Oh my goodness, what happened? You know, were you all right? Did you have to have surgery, cast, whatever? How you doing now? How's the leg working? So on and so forth." But if I tell somebody, "Well, when I was six years old, I was sexually abused by my cousin," uh, that's end of conversation. Yeah, it's crazy. It's I love that you put it like that. We put it like that sometimes in jury selection when we're trying to because. I go off on about this all the time. When you walk into a jury with a robbery case or a burglary case or something like that, it's very easy for people to just kind of see the facts and be like, okay, and come to a logical decision. Just look at the evidence and go forward. But the second that sex gets invited into the conversation or is a part of the conversation, things change dramatically and people lose their minds. Wow. Yes. And to just extend that metaphor a little further, if 
at the age of six, I had broken my leg and nothing was done about it. What, what shape would my leg be in today? Right. And everybody would be completely understanding. They'd be like, oh, that's horrible. I can't believe they didn't get you the proper care. But it's the same damn thing. It really Correct. is. Honestly, so if somebody said, yes, if someone said, hey, well, just give him hugs and just leave him alone and he'll be all right. <laughs> yes. Again, my leg would set. But how properly would it set? And then what other, what other parts of my body would that start to affect? Not only would my leg not work properly now, would my, would my back hurt? And so just the extension of that. And so it's, it's really that when I use that metaphor, that really resonates with people in terms of, oh, wow, I see. And it's not, and I'm talking about very intelligent people mm -hmm. who are first in a wide variety of subjects. But in this area, as you say, people do lose their minds or they just shut down mm -hmm. and can't, you know, they just can't imagine what it, what it would be like. Today, what, what is infuriating for me in 2020 is if you see the situations with R. Kelly and Bill Cosby mm -hmm. and Harvey Weinstein and our, our current president, and in terms of, you know, sometimes I overhear people talking about it. And again, they're victim blaming or they're saying uh, this person could have made this story up or that. You know, sometimes I do talk to people and I try not to be confrontational about it. But I said to myself, do you really think I would want to tell this story if it wasn't true? Right. What, what would I be getting out of this? What part and of this then, is fine? Yes, uh, this is not, it's not what I would consider enjoyable, but it's necessary. It's necessary for me to move forward with any level of productivity about my life. Uh, you know, I'm happy to, that's why I'm happy to get in as much detail as possible. Cause I do want people to know, you know, this is not a random sort of one-off story that, that I've made up. The, the knee-jerk reaction for so many people in, ter in terms of sexual violence is to not believe the victim and to try to figure out what is going on here, why would they make that up, or how can we explain this away, which is very, it's infuriating, especially for someone who is trying to come forward and talk about it so that other people can learn, because I think the general public doesn't understand that most people don't talk about this while they're still a child. It's, it's the minority of people who actually tell somebody as it's happening or soon thereafter in time. The vast majority of survivors of this don't tell until way later in their lives. And then people are like, oh, he's making it up because it was, you know, 40 years ago. No. Correct. You know, the psychology behind it is, is nearly limitless in terms of how it affects someone, how it affects each person differently. For me, obviously, as it led to, you know, my, my lifelong addiction here or, you know, 30 plus year addiction, so much of my life had been about again why is it that i'm why is it that i'm gambling mm -hmm. why is it that in all other areas of my life uh i i seem to have things together but anything attached to my gambling makes me this deviant to be straightforward about it and that i came to the realization that in this country we're very uh we're very symptom oriented rather than cause oriented yeah. so whether you were looking at TV and you, there's drug commercial after drug commercial talking about this new drug that has 20 different side effects rather than, no, what's the cause of this issue that you're dealing with? I, I was very funny, the commercial where the guy, he was about to eat a very greasy meal. And so he takes the antacid before he has the greasy meal because that's the solution rather than why don't you eat a better diet? And I just let them know we have reached a point where we are acknowledging hey, this is the way that it is, and we're not willing to do anything about the problem. We're just willing to sort of paper over it. We're willing to try to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, 
yeah. rather than rather than deal with the gun issue. So for me, again, that that's where I look. I know there's so much work to be done in terms of looking at the causes. So every time I see somebody with an addiction issue or something, I say to my, I want to say to people, well, instead of, I know you want to, I know you want to stop that situation. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot like here with my metaphors, I talk about <laughs> that if you found, if you found black mold in your basement, of course, the very first thing you would do is have somebody come in and remediate, get all of that out. But before you put any new drywall or anything else up, you go, wait, what was the cause of this? Mm -hmm. How did this get started? And that's really where, again, people aren't addressing, th that's the issue, really. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're looking at the wrong, wrong part of the, of, the whole, of the whole story. Do you think a lot of people who have these subsequent, either substance abuse disorders, gambling, whatever, however it manifests in their lives, how long do you think it takes for them to make that connection between I have this issue and it came from that? Because I think for a lot of people, it takes a really long time. They don't even understand that the two things are connected. I think the majority of people never make the connection. They never yeah. really make the connection. And I know family members of mine. I've told my story to probably a little bit over 70 different people. Mm -hmm. And obviously in, in maybe a dozen of those people, once I finished telling them my story, have said, well, let me tell you what happened to me. Wow. That's gratifying. But in many cases, I've been the first person they've ever told. And then it makes issues or things that I know about them a lot more understandable. They've wanted to tell somebody, but they, and we all do, all, survi all, all survivors of abuse want to tell their story. We all do. It's just a question of, we need a safe space to be able to do so. And we want to be believed. The first people that I told, I, I told my wife, but this was back when we were dating, and she was just quiet about it. She just, she didn't believe me. And she is as nice a person as you will ever find. Well, you know how difficult it can be when I chose to tell her in the food court of a mall, <laughs> where I just was like, hey, I need to be, you know, I need to be out in the public somewhere. I needed to be someplace where if it got contentious, I could just immediately walk away. I wasn't bound by anything. Do you uh, think she just thought you were like making excuses for your gambling issues? And correct. correct. Because it did come after a situation of I had gambled money and I had embezzled money from my job mm -hmm. and I needed several thousand dollars immediately in order to, you know, not get arrested. I went to her and my mom to be able to help me. And so, yeah, it was a combination of that as well as she just didn't know how to respond to that. And now, mind you, she had been, and she had been molested growing up. Did you already and know that? I did not. I did not. She had been molested as well as had, had someone, was, she had been molested on numerous occasions by a variety of people because she was, she, she developed early. Um, that was a situation she obviously had to deal with. And then also there was a situation where a, a schoolmate of hers had invited her over for a sleepover and tried to also abuse her in that circumstance. And she never told anybody about that until years, obviously years later. It is, yeah, it's, as I said, I, I, it happened to me. And then I was asking people about their repressed memory. I was questioning that. It happened to my wife, yet she couldn't believe what had happened to me and, and so forth. It's, it's, again, it, until it gets out in the forefront where it is something that we can just all discuss, like we're discussing now, I can have that discussion. Mm -hmm. The level of discussion I could have with a therapist is something that I could have with someone. 
And and you are right. It, things are getting better. And the conversations, I now am, let's say, comfortable enough to be able to, in context of the work that I do with Prevail and discussing domestic violence and sexual assault and awareness and prevention, I have no problem saying to somebody that I'm a victim of childhood sexual abuse. There've been a variety of responses, but they're all very respectful. And people, it's not as if people are taken aback by it anymore. And I've had a few people tell me, well, I, actually, I'm a, I'm a victim as well. At least it's gotten to that point. It's my hope, again, that it can be something that is discussed along with any other major topic that is affecting families and, and just affecting society in general uh, in this country. Well, doing what you're doing right now and speaking publicly as you have been doing, I, that's how this happens. That's how we experience this cultural shift where it is no longer the secretive thing because as we all know, when it's secretive, it just breeds abuse and it continues to perpetuate because no one's talking about it your courage and being able to come on here and tell your story, talk to, you know, openly to people about it. That's how these things happen. So thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. And, and thank you for the great work you're doing. When I found out about this podcast, I was, I, to be honest with you, I was like, wow, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe someone had the dedication to, uh, to get this up and running. So it's very uh, nice of you. You got to do it, right? Got to keep on keeping on. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got, did you say you first started talking about it when you're about 46? So how that came about was that when I was, uh, when I was 31, okay. is when I first told uh, my then girlfriend, uh, now my wife, and again, it had come out of a situation in terms of my gambling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had stolen money from literally any, any circumstance you could imagine. I'd stolen from my parents. I had I'd stolen from a college roommate. I'd stolen from I'd stolen from work, and again, uh, not understanding this sort of insatiable need to gamble and and how it was connected to to my abuse. Until I came across an article online, again in search of saying what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. I cannot stop gambling. I and I don't want to stop gambling. It's mm-hmm. not just that I can't. I don't want to. That despite all of the negative consequences, I don't want to. And finally came across this article that said there was a, you know, studies had shown there was a connection between sexual abuse and addiction. And yes, and and it was, oh my good, it was was one of the greatest days of my life. I literally at least said, oh my goodness, there is, oh, and I, it led to sort of that rush of an experience of that's when I sort of stopped repressing. And this is 25 years after the abuse happened. Correct. This, that is correct, yes. I had gone through numerous circumstances. I've been to Gamblers Anonymous and with obviously without really any success. And one of the issues that I have with the GA movement and, and Alcoholics Anonymous is, let me first say that I've met a lot of great people there and, and I don't want to downplay the good work that they do, but all of their strategies and so forth were developed back in the in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And they remain exactly the same. And they have a very cookie cutter approach to dealing with everyone. So in terms of they just say, hey, you have this mental defect, which makes you feel like you're you're about to be recalled by the good people at Ford Motors. <laughs> and you just repeat that at every meeting. And so initially it's fantastic to go in there and hear similar stories of other people. No, you're not alone. That's fantastic. But the anonymous aspect of it, 
I think is ultimately kind of self-defeating. Just as you said about, you need to give voice to this in a situation where people understand that they're not alone and it's not unusual. And so just that anonymous aspect of, okay, I go into this room with a bunch of other people and we only use our first name and I talk about it for one hour a week and I'm cool in that hour or whatever period of time I spend there, but then I step out and I have to go back into the real world and deal with those real world issues and also deal with a bunch of people who have no idea what it is to be a compulsive gambler. 95% of the time, I'm still in a world that has nothing to do with the, the good things that GA is trying to do. And so that became frustrating to me over time was to this cookie cutter approach. And I, I kept asking myself, why? Mm-hmm. I understand I have this defect. I understand this is wrong and so forth. But why do I think this way? Why, 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 why? And I wasn't getting any answers there. By the time I talked to my wife about it and so forth, I had, um, uh, excuse me, my girlfriend at the time and got bailed out of that situation. And, you know, I, uh, the longest I'd ever gone without gambling was nine months. And so a period of time approached when I was about 40, where I got the opportunity to open and run my own business. It was a comedy club. I had been doing stand-up comedy and that was my passion. And at the time I just got married. My wife got pregnant on our honeymoon. And so I had a lot of additional pressure that I was not used to. And working 80 hour weeks at this job that I love, but was just incredibly stressful. But I thought I was doing a great job and handling it all well. But I was uh, gambling online had just started and poker online. And I was doing all of that. And Fortunately, at the time I was winning, but that's always a a short-term situation, but I'm winning and working and doing all these things. And I think I'm handling it great. Again, I'm not trying to glamorize in any way, shape or form this next story, but just to show you the the depths of sort of, you know, depravity that addiction can take you to. I had about $3,000 that online I turned into $50,000 about over the course of two weeks playing blackjack and poker. And then in one afternoon, I lost the entire $50,000 and had to go back to work (laughs) that evening. Even in saying that, I I don't even know how a situation like that occurred. At the end of the day, what I could, one thing I could say was that it wasn't about the money. At the end of the day, I'm not a guy that spends lavishly or anything like that, but it was that sense of power Mm -hmm. and sense of control that I had Look at me. Look what I was able to do. Just me, Eric, by himself. I was able to turn this amount of money into that amount of money. But what was ever going to be a good enough amount of money for me to stop? There was no number. I had very much a me against the world mentality that I think was greatly developed out of my abuse. I was going to, like a lot of people who've been abused, they think as long as they be successful in the other aspects of their life, that's going to compensate for the abuse that they went through. I don't need to deal with this as long as the other parts of my life are very successful. As a matter of fact, it's something that I was easily able to overcome. Doesn't that make me even better than the average individual? That I have this this negative aspect to my life that I've been able to overcome. I think that's extremely common. Yeah, so how do you you deal with the psychology of that at, at the same time you want to talk about, you still want to talk about a situation that for you is incredibly shameful and embarrassing and makes you an other, you know, just puts you in this category that you don't, that you desperately don't want to be in, but, but that you were put in, no, you know, you're already in it. 
There's, there's right. no way that you can't even talk yourself out of it. You can't be like, well, if I just imagine that it didn't happen because those memories, they keep coming back. And yeah, it's not how it works. Unfortunately, it would be lovely if it was. And that is where we're going to leave you for today. We will post the second part in the Eric Short series one week from today. Next time, Eric will go more into some of the bigger picture issues and give his opinion on how we can all work together to combat sexual violence in our communities. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and to share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.